Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 1011. We begin this episode with David Lorla welcoming Sig Meidel, Vice President and Assistant GM for the Baltimore Orioles. Sig tells us about breaking into baseball with the Cardinals way back when, and what his work is like nowadays running the analytics department in Baltimore. We also hear about the day-to-day of working with Mike Elias and former podcast guest Eve Rosenbaum. Finally, David asks Sig about seeing Albert Pujols in his prime, as well as how hard it was to trade Trey Mancini last year. No, it's a t- it's a terribly difficult decision. You know, we're not immune to uh, the attachments that the fans feel, and, and especially for such a inspirational story of the cancer survivor and such a, a likable person. No, it was hard. It's hard. But, you know, at the end of the day, our job is to to create a, a winning team for these fans. And it was a nice sort of win-win situation that he was able to go to Houston and and have success there in the playoffs that that pick he made. I don't know if they if they win the World Series without that. And and I'm happy for him and his wife that, you know, they got to experience that and Trey has the World Series ring and I'm uh, looking forward to to saying hello to him when we play the Cubs. After that, Ben Clemens sits down with lead prospect analyst Eric Longenhagen for the latest edition of Fangraph's Backstories. Eric tells us about going from interning with his hometown Iron Pigs to working at Baseball Info Solutions and ESPN before finally ending up here at Fangraphs. He also tells us about how getting mono in college helped him start his writing career and how much he did not enjoy selling insurance. Ben then asks Eric about his favorite baseball memories, highlighted by going to Veteran Stadium for his first Major League game. My first baseball memory is going to Veteran Stadium to see a Yankees-Phillies interleague game. I haven't gone back and looked at exactly what year this was, but my parents surprised me. They told me that we were going to the zoo when, in fact, we were like going to the vet for my first baseball game. Now, because it's Veteran Stadium, I don't have the, yeah, we walked out of the concourse tunnel and there it was. And it was like the most beautiful green grass I'd ever seen. Like, no, (laughs) it is. It was like a felt looking, dour, green, filthy turf that maybe gave a bunch of the early 90s Phillies like cancer or something. Like a weird number of those early 90s Phillies players have had early disease in their lives anyway. But it was, you know, horrible looking and it was still so awesome. But before we get to these excellent segments, I must issue you my weekly reminder to visit the Fangraphs.com shop. Not only can you pick up some sweet official swag, but it's also the place to pick up an ad-free Fangraphs membership. Good for yourself or as a gift for a friend. Not only is ad-free easily the preferred way to experience the website, but it's definitely the preferred way to support the website. It is only because of the support of our members that we can bring you the daily articles, projections, leaderboards, roster resource pages, podcasts, all of it. We truly couldn't do it without you. Thank you. Enjoy the show. Hey, baseball fans. Happy last week before pitchers and catchers report. I am David Lorla, and my guest is uh, Sig Meidel, Vice President and Assistant General Manager Analytics for the Baltimore Orioles. Sig, thanks for coming on to uh, Fangrass Audio. Thanks for having me, David. Yeah, as uh, I just mentioned to you right before we started recording, I don't know how I've managed to not invite you on the show before. So yeah, I think that's on me, right? 
Yeah, no hard feelings. Happy to be here. <laughs> so, Sig, you have uh, a long and highly respected background in analytics, as I'm sure most people hearing this know. So let's start with this question. What exactly are analytics? Yeah, that's a, it's a good question. It's one I, I get often. My sort of go-to answer with that is I would exchange the word analytics for, for evidence. And analytics is, is really looking at data. And data is simply measurements of the real world, evidence from the real world. And we're all going to get judged by, hap by what happens in the real world. So man, oh man, the more we can understand it, I think the better off we'll be. And analytics, you know, is not some evil force causing intelligent people to make dumb decisions, lose the game, send the children home sad and, and ruin the sport. It's, it's something completely different. And with that in mind, Sig, why do some people still in 2023 view analytics as a dirty word? I think it's foreign. I think it's a, it's a still a new idea. Many, many in the industry have had their success and have had great success without the use of analytics. And so it's, it's something foreign. It's something that could be thought of as, you know, as a threat. But I think it's a lot of it is just our species. We're a fickle species. We, we don't often like to change. We, we say we want to change, but often what we mean is we want others to change. And when it, it comes to us, that's, you know, it's often answered with at best a skepticism and at worst, you know, a, pushback or even hostility. And changing a belief is no different. It's difficult. And with change in mind, you have been part of the analytics revolution, if you want to call it that, at, you know, front office wise, for as long as pretty much anyone, um, you know, Farhan Zaidi is one of your peers, you know, certainly. How much have you actually seen the game change since you got into pro ball with the Cardinals in, I believe it was 2005? Yeah, I think I've, I've had a unique, a relatively unique experience in baseball in that I got in, like you said, 2005, I was maybe the fourth analyst in baseball. And so that meant that 26 of the teams thought the perfect number of analysts to have was zero. Not too many, not too few. You know, zero was perfect. And now there's got to be close to 500. So I've been in the industry as it, you know, changed, but I, I wasn't just sort of a, off on the side that the owners I worked for, Bill DeWitt in St. Louis, and then Jim Crane in Houston, and now John Angelos here, were not just interested in, you know, dipping a toe into this analytics thing, but instead were quite clear in that they were expecting us to take advantage of whatever opportunities there were, and they were willing to put up with the uh, pushback that were to come with it. So I think my experience is, is unique that it's been sort of the leading edge and the bleeding edge and a whole lot of experiences in those 18 or 19 years. And going back in time, you know, I've heard a lot about your Houston tenure. I think a lot of listeners have, but your time in St. Louis isn't really talked about much. You know, what type of projects are you actually working on as an analyst in like 2005, 2006, 2007? Yeah, so Bill DeWitt uh, had brought in, to his credit, uh, Jeff Luno, a McKinsey consultant that worked with his son-in-law at a time when 
nobody thought anything was broke, especially the Cardinals. They were winning a hundred games a year. There were, like I said, not really analysts in baseball. And he brought in Jeff and made him scouting director. And so you could imagine how incendiary something like that was at that time. And Jeff and Bill brought in, brought me in. And my main job was sort of analyzing the draft and, and trying to nudge us towards more evidence-based decision-making in the draft, that the interest outside of Jeff in the draft was relatively modest at that time, which isn't a giant surprise. So I, I had to convince Jeff. And then in time, um, with the owner support and Jeff's work, you know, John Mosalak, who was assistant GM, became GM. And to his credit, you know, the organization grew in appreciation of, of analytics. So your last year, Sig, with the Cardinals was 2011. Your first year in Baltimore, I guess it's the winter of 2018. I don't know how to word this question. When you and Mike came to Baltimore together, what was the front office like? Like, was it similar to the 2011 Cardinals or farther ahead, farther behind? Yeah, probably I have a bias. Like when you ask what the front office was like, my attention goes to the analytical firepower they had. And so in 2005 in St. Louis, there were, like I said, zero analysts. In 2011, when we went to Houston, there was also zero analysts. And then in 2019 in Baltimore, they also didn't have any. So it was similar. It was similar in that regard. But I think what was a, a big contrast was just the amount of analysts in baseball, right? In, in 2011, maybe there was 50 or 60. But by the time we got here to Baltimore, there had to be 400 and something analysts in baseball. So for whatever reasons, they had not adopted what was widespread by that time. And that really makes things difficult, in my opinion. Looking at the uh, Orioles website, it appears that there are 12 people who have the title analyst there. You know, one I know has the, I notice has the title pro player evaluation. What does that group work on? You know, like what type of projects, you know, particularly a, a pro player evaluator? Yeah, I, I, I bet it's not too different than the group as a whole than other organizations. I, I think we look at it as, Anytime a human being is making a decision, it seems really unlikely that some sort of analysis of the data on past decisions can't help but anchor them. And that's true throughout the organization, whether it's a signing of a Dominican a young man or a veteran free agent signing. And so we have a group, like you said, 12 or 13, and they're specialists, but yet still generalists and you know there's minor league projection systems there's amateur systems in-game strategy a whole lot of different things and and we may share a little bit on on the website but but really so many of them have their hands in, in so many different projects and you have worked with mike for quite a long time now sig what has been unique you know for lack of a better word about that experience yeah, and I, I think I touched upon it a little bit earlier. Like my unique experience in baseball is is similar to to Mike Elias's. I we've been working together sixteen years. 
obviously with St. Louis and Houston and now here and a lot of that bleeding edge, leading edge, disruption, rethinking, failing, rethinking, having success, that it's been both of us, you know, together in those organizations. And, and I think we both have that unique experience. How would you compare, Sig, uh, compare and contrast the primary roles of you, Mike, and Eve Rosenbaum? Yeah, so Mike clearly is the GM. He's got the final say on on all the decisions. His vision for the organization leads leads and directs so much of what we do. And Eve is awesome. Like, what what doesn't she do? It's the day-to-day roster moves, the transaction moves, but she's also involved in player development, in the draft. She's got a ton of experience internationally and just her intelligence and work ethic and experience in all sorts of areas of baseball just makes her amazingly valuable to us. It's still a relatively small front office. And so all of us are involved in many things. Myself, my expertise and so much of my experience is in analytics. So I'm responsible for the analytics group, what they're working on, what they're prioritizing, how it's being presented, that sort of thing. And in an organization that in the organization Mike Elias has created, it's so evidence-based something. How would I describe it? But it's so evidence-based that really being efficient and paying as much attention as you can to the analytics group, I think, uh, I think pays off. We had Eve on the podcast uh, some months back, and we talked a lot about hitting. So let's talk a little sig about pitching. Something that stands out to me is when the Orioles were at Fenway in, I believe it was September, both Spencer Watkins and Austin both told me in separate conversations just how much they've improved since they've come to the organization. I know that Grayson Rodriguez has spoke about how much the org has gotten better, even in his short time there. So what is the pitching plan like? You know, not asking you to give away secrets, but why are you guys so darn good? Oh, that's great. First of all, that's great to hear. I didn't know that. That's that's wonderful here, our pitchers, when they say something like that. And I think that's our plan. That's our hope that for a team in a market like this, it is so extremely important that we draft and we develop well and development doesn't stop in the minors. And to hear those two major leaguers speak of that, that's great. And we, we learned a lot. We had, we learned a lot of lessons in Houston about developing players, both hitters and pitchers. And I think that was some of the value that Mike and myself have when we came over here was was a lot of the lessons we learned in Houston. And so we'd be foolish not to take advantage of those best practices and share that and repeat that not only with the minor leaguers, but also the major leaguers. I think it's probably fair to say that Brent Strom, who was in Houston for a long time, is a pitching genius. Yeah, I'd second that. Yeah. Who are the pitching geniuses in the Orioles organization? We have it throughout. I think what made Stromy so unique was at a time that the industry was just starting to change. He was as experienced and capable as anybody. And he was also the most interested and willing to change. It, it seems to be a theme, you know, change is, 
is difficult, but without a modesty to believe that there's a better way of doing things, it's impossible. And often expertise and modesty don't go together, but with Shrami, they did. And that's, I think, a rarity. And, and so at a time when many teams weren't taking advantage of all these things because of, you know, cultural stresses or cultural difficulties, the building of the trust with Strami and the mind he had, it, it, it so enabled us to, to do things maybe a little bit more quickly than if we had other persons in charge. And now the industry is, is so much different than it was in 2012, 2013. And it's, it, we have an all-star of, of pitching coaches up and down our organization, just like, uh, we did, you know, five, six, seven years ago in Houston. And you've mentioned change uh, multiple times in this conversation, Sig. You know, with that in mind, the Orioles finally, you know, under this new regime are active in the international market, which is some, the Astros have been very good with that, particularly with pitchers, you know, Framber Valdez, you know, Urquidy, Garcia, Javier, you know, names are popping in, into my head. You were there when those guys were signed. How much has, did analytics play a role in actually acquiring those guys versus eyeball scouting? Yeah, I think the further away, obviously, you are from the major leagues, the more the eyeball, the scouting, the subjective evaluations of our experts, of our of our scouts matter. And, you know, when you're scouting a 14 or 15-year-old, yeah, you have some data on them. You likely have some track man. You can infer some things there, but... The voice of the scout is, is paramount and is, is extremely important. So, so much of the kudos and credit goes to the scouts. And then once these pitchers were in player development, again, it's, it's the coaches with the analytics and the tech as a tool and, you know, all the credit in the world to, to Houston and developing what they did. We hope that we could imitate that here. And I think it's fair to say, Sig, that while you are an analyst, you and everybody in the org has a tremendous amount of respect for scouts. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I think I know as well as anybody the value of a scout because we we so look at the numbers. And after we've squeezed all we can out of the numbers, their expert opinions not just move things, they they really move things. And so you'd be foolish to to try to compete in this world without both analytics and then the respect of the value of the scouts too. I would think that when you're drafting and developing players like Adley Rushman, Gunnar Henderson, Grayson Rodriguez, and so, so many more great prospects in your org, you know, it was an analyst and scouting, you know, meld, you know, that attracted, you know, the, to these guys, right? Yeah, of course. I mean, we, we don't end up with a player ahead of the 29 other teams, unless they pretty much have every box that we're looking to check, checked. And those boxes are not only sound, you know, performance background, but also a bright outlook from the scouts. Yeah. A few more questions, Sig, before I let you go. Um, how difficult a decision was it for you, Mike, and the org to part ways with Trey Mancini? No, it's a, it's a terribly difficult decision. You know, we're not immune to, uh, the attachments that the fans feel and, and especially for such a, 
inspirational story of the cancer survivor and such a, a likable person. No, it was hard. It's hard. But, you know, at the end of the day, our job is to to create a, a winning team for these fans. And it was a nice sort of win-win situation that he was able to go to Houston and and have success there in the playoffs that that pick he made. I don't know if they if they win the World Series without that and and I'm happy for him and his wife that you know they got to experience that and Trey has the World Series ring and I'm uh, looking forward to to saying hello to him when we play the Cubs. I would like to uh circle way back uh again to your Cardinals days because there was a player there in his prime named Albert Pujols. What do you remember about getting to watch Albert Pujols on a regular basis? Right. This was the beginning of, you know, this wonderful adventure for me, like joining baseball and and experiencing this job that I just love. And so going to a team, a good team with a fan base and the excitement of St. Louis was was beyond what I expected. And, and to be able to see Albert Pujols, you know, perhaps the, the greatest hitter of our generation play every day and to see the relationship he had with his fans was this amazing bonus of an experience. So it's, it's nothing but wonderful experiences and, and memories from the St. Louis and the Pujols days. The other thing I wanted to bring up before I let you go, and this is very much a change of direction, when you were with the Astros, you spent a season with their short season affiliate. I recall us standing on the field prior to a game in Lowell, Massachusetts. What was that experience like to actually be to be an analyst traveling with a short season affiliate? Yeah, first of all, from a personal standpoint, it was, you know, one of the my favorite events in my life. Like I had never imagined that I would ever be in uniform on the baseball field, on the buses, eating bad food, traveling, you know, across the Northeast and having that experience as, as a baseball coach. So that was nothing but a thrill. I was sort of kept waiting for somebody to pull the plug on it and, and we made it through the whole season without that. So from a personal standpoint, that was just nothing but a thrill. From a professional standpoint, it was, you know, quite useful. I think having no experience in the minor leagues and just being a front office person, you could imagine what our lunchtime conversations are like. It's all sorts of ideas. And to a front office person, many of those ideas seem like they make sense. But after spending that summer with the team, I appreciate the minor leagues and the constraints that the coaches work under, the time constraints the facilities constraints, the travel constraints, the food constraints, like all of these things that I don't think one could fully appreciate unless they're there suffering with them every day and or experiencing it and, and suffering at times when the bus breaks down, the hotel messed things up, you know, there's not a decent restaurant that time of night, uh, the field is flooded, all those things. So I think... I'm a lot wiser as a front office person for that experience. And from a personal standpoint, I'm, I'm a lot better too with the thrill of, of being a coach for a summer. And I am guessing that you probably go out of your way now to avoid 10 hour bus trips and really bad food. Yeah. Who doesn't? I haven't <laughs> been, yeah, I haven't been to an Applebee's since that 2017 summer. 
I am glad that Applebee's is not a sponsor of uh, of Fangraphs Audio Sig. Yeah. <laughs> hey, so on that note, you know, thanks again for coming on. Sorry it took so long to get you on. And uh, it should be a fun season for the Orioles. My pleasure, David. Keep up all the good work. Thanks, Sig. And thanks, everybody, for listening to Fangraphs Audio. Hey, I'm Ben Clemens. Today we're doing another Fangraphs backstory, and we've got Eric Longenhagen on this time. Hey, Eric, how's it going, man? Good, Ben. What's going on? Not too much. Um, we're recording this in the lead up to Super Bowl week, obviously. People are going to listen to this on Friday, and I'm pretty excited to go watch the game with uh, some of my... Actually, one of my friends, he and his wife are both from Philly, and I'm just curious to see just the overall Philadelphianness of it. And it's, it's a city that has a real imprint. And yeah, I mean, you were talking before we came on about, you know, can you pull some string strings and go to the Super Bowl? It is in Arizona, conveniently enough for you. Yes, I've got childhood friend and his dad coming in, crashing at the Fangraphs desert compound <laughs> and, you know, showing them around the desert for the first time. This is my buddy Ryan and his dad who, you know, was like my best friend late in high school and coming out here like to do Eagle Super Bowl stuff. He and his dad are season ticket holders. So... I know that they are going to be buck wild. Like the yeah. the people at Lincoln Financial Field stopped replacing Ryan's cup holder after a while because like <laughs> it would be the target of his anger and dismay at certain, you know, results. He's the Twitch streamer with 75 mouses that he just yeah. keeps smashing in anger. <laughs> he just, you know, that's what he would take his anger out on. And so after a while, they just like, you know, he'd come back for a new season and there would be a fresh cup holder there. Someone in, you know, stadium ops would, would be going through in the off season and going, oh, like we need to replace this cup holder. And after a while, they noticed a pattern and stopped replacing it. So that's Ryan. And it'll be, you know, some of that is not for me, but like <laughs> it's fun to be around once in a while. And it's gonna, sure going to be fun to be around for Super Bowl week. Yeah, you should get some uh, some branding at the house that says uh, Fangraph Desert Compound. I really like the name of that. The Southwest Desert Compound. Yeah, yeah. it's going to be great. So I'm looking forward to it. The Waste Management Open. Anytime the Super Bowl is here. This will be my second Super Bowl in Arizona since I've moved here. The other one was the Patriots, Seahawks, Malcolm Butler interception Super Bowl. Oh, one that I remember fondly from the comfort of my friend's apartment. I like that you named the two biggest events in sports every year, the Super Bowl and the Waste Management Open. Those are... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's when people get wild i have actually heard that about that golf tournament that it's yes that's pretty lit yes so let's get started with the normal format but now that i've uh, made my golf jokes for the day eric how did you end up at Fangraphs? and just uh, a little inside baseball here eric alone among guests was kind enough to provide me with essentially a set list like all the things he wants to talk about so if he misses something i can just needle him about it it's great yeah so it's been i mean my first baseball job was in 2008. It was working for the Lehigh Valley Iron Pigs in the inaugural season for that franchise. So the Philadelphia Phillies, AAA affiliate had been the uh, Scranton Wilkes-Barre Red Barons. And guys who came through there were like Shane Victorino and, you know, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And then for a year, they were the Ottawa Lynx while in Allentown, Pennsylvania, literally like 10 minutes from my front door growing up in Catasauqua, they were building a brand new ballpark, AAA ballpark for the for the Phillies AAA affiliate to, to play in. Mm -hmm. Their first season was 08, the year that the Phillies won the World Series, and also the summer after my freshman year of college. So come home from St. Joe's, 
for the summer, living at home again during the summer in Catasauqua and like interview and, and get the position. I'm the youngest intern. They wanted older people. They wanted people who were going to be like on a one or two year track into mm-hmm. a job. Makes but sense. because of my proximity to the ballpark, they knew that I would show up every day. <laughs> And so not only me, but my friend Ryan, who's coming here for the Super Bowl, and my other very good friend, Alex, both of which were like, you know, they were in my wedding party. Three of us were interns the first year that the Iron Pigs were a thing. And so that was like learning anything about baseball ops that you could possibly learn. And a lot of it had nothing to do with like scouting or player development. Those were the things that like in our free time, we thought about and like conducted but Mm -hmm. it was all about like stadium ops i worked a grill i you know wore aprons sold foam fingers did you know clean toilets anything that you could possibly do in a baseball stadium for a couple of years ryan was on cup holder replacement i assume (laughs) sometimes yeah like dealing with season ticket holders who were very entitled like anything you could possibly imagine we did yeah and that was almost half of my life ago it was, you know, 15 years ago that all of this kind of started. It's crazy to think about it that way. Yeah. One of my um, my step cousin, my uncle's stepson, ran a, uh, a college woodbat league team, the, uh, the Cheyenne Cutthroats in Cheyenne, Wyoming. And we went to a game there one time. And yeah, man, he just did everything. I, I totally know what you're talking about for like, I mean, I guess AAA is much nicer than that. And probably they have a lot more people doing it. But that baseball ops job, it really is the operations. It's like grabbing stuff and moving it around. You know, and it exposed you to things that were not great about sports industry that like, you know, obviously there's a certain like systemic issue at play because I was making 25 bucks a game. You know, I was showing, we were showing up for work at like three 3.30, getting the stadium ready for the game, and then the game would roll through until 10, 10 10.30 p.m. before you're, like, getting out of there. And, you know, to make, like, 25 or 30 bucks to do that, like, there's only a certain type of person who can do that, someone who's, like, lives nearby and, like, has a car and, like, you know, can live on... Right, isn't paying rent. Right. Seems uh, seems important. Right, so, you know, some of that stuff, and then, like, you're grinding and like paying dues and like all that stuff that is kind of a mixed bag and uh the commercialization of the sport like every square inch of that ballpark is for sale man and and you start to learn like what the revenue streams really are and what people are willing to do and lean on to like make those streams flow nice and 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 flush for everyone involved uh So you got exposed to some of that, but then this is where I like really started talking to scouts, like being at the ballpark early enough for BP and Mm. other than ballpark personnel at that point, it's just like scouts who might be in the stands watching BP. And, you know, I would chat some of those folks up and start to, to learn and build some lasting relationships, especially with like a handful of people who I still talk to consistently today. And starting that at age 18 is a, you know, for me at least, was a big, big deal. Yeah. To be able to do that already at that age gave me like a head start relative to other people who are starting to to get into doing that. I know people who gave up a normal life in their late 20s to right. drop everything and pursue baseball. And so like to have a decade head start on you know, those folks almost by accident was very fortunate. And that's like a through line, I think, for for me, for sure. 
and for most people who end up doing what they wanted to do when they were 17 years old for a living, like a lot of it just has to do with luck and that the Iron Pigs ballpark being brand new 10 minutes from yeah. you know, the doorstep of my childhood home is the yeah. you know exhibit A of that. Pretty much perfect timing. Yes. The timing of a lot of the stuff, and, and this like extends way back into to childhood, like but the timing of a lot of the stuff has been fortunate from when Moneyball was written and like my understanding of it in high school and then the way the the job market was adjusting for that thinking as I came to, you know, be of like professional age and like all sorts of variables for sure have worked out. I agree with you that there's a lot of kind of hidden luck that we mostly don't see. I think you might just be better at seeing it than the average person. Yeah. Then, you know, at some point, so I'm working for the Iron Pigs then through my college summers. I'm doing other stuff. Like my job was as a game day intern. So I would only work at the ballpark on home games. <laughs> and uh, so the other parts of the summer, I'm doing other stuff. So like I'm running an afternoon program at my local playground wiffle ball and stuff for kids in the neighborhood coming like and playing so like i'm doing that stuff i'm working at a williams sonoma part-time like all kinds of odd stuff and then i'm also driving a lot of the times with my friends but on my own mostly to all the minor league parks at this time now like in my area so anything within two and a half hours in each direction it's a pretty good chunk in that part of the part of the country Sure, but like because even if I've got a even if I've got like a a home game the next day, I don't have to be at work till three thirty. So if I'm driving two and a half hours to Lakewood, or if I'm you know doing a five hour round trip thing to Williamsport or whatever, yeah, I'm getting home really late, but it doesn't really matter. Like, I'm, who cares? You wake up at eleven right. the next day, whatever. I'm nineteen years old. Like, I'm not old enough to go to a bar. This is the type of stuff I can do late into the night, and there's not really a repercussion for it the next day. So that was lucky as well. So I'm seeing minor leaguers a lot at this point, and uh, some of that stuff was was amazing in retrospect. Like I saw Jordano Ventura and Dylan Bundy against one another in like a day game on a Sunday, and then drove home to an Iron Pigs home game in the afternoon, and Mark Pryor pitched for Pawtucket. Like <laughs> crazy stuff, because the proximity of minor league affiliates in that part of the country, yeah, is like concentrated. And there were, especially at the time when the New York Penn League existed, many different leagues within driving distance of where I grew up in the Lehigh Valley and was, and was living. Anything in that mid-Atlantic Philly I-95 corridor, you have the Eastern League, AA, you have the International League, AAA, you've got some Carolina League and Sally mm -hmm. League stuff that is coming to your front door. Uh, you know, teams from Rome, Georgia are playing at Lakewood and such. So I can see a lot of different players uh, within, you know, driving distance of of my house. So I start grinding away at that for, you know, the, the days that I'm not doing AAA stuff at the Iron Pigs. And that's how I end up meeting a bunch of different people. I end up, you know, meeting Keith Law that way. I end up meeting just uh, like Jason. seeing him before the game. Yeah. Right. Like Keith and I met at a uh, university of Virginia and East Carolina game. Jeff Hoffman was going to pitch for East Carolina and Virginia had a bunch of guys who, you know, you know, Joe yeah. McCarthy and Connor Jones and, you know, a bunch of guys. And so, yeah, like I meet Mike Farron, I meet Jason Parks, I meet all these people who are sort of in my backyard doing games at the same places at the same time. Uh, and all of that is, you know, helpful for learning and, and, you know, inadvertently networking, which is like not a thing that I'm socially geared to like go do intentionally, but just happens when you are spending a ton of time at the field. Yeah, that uh, that's kind of just 
just like osmosis almost. Like you can't just be around these same people all the time. Just see them in different places too and be like, oh, let's not talk. Like eventually you're going to talk. Yeah. And I'm, I'm a slow burn on that stuff. Like I'm not like, hey, I'm Eric Longenhagen. Like nice to meet you. Like, yeah, I noticed your bag. It takes me a while <laughs> to be like, you know, I got to like crack a joke or something to break an ice and the opportunity for that just has to present itself. You know, so it took me, it takes me a while still. It's just not really my thing. But yeah, then at some point in college, like I got mono and had to shut things down for like a couple of months. It was pretty bad. My doctor told me my liver was like cooking inside my body because it took me a long time to realize that that's what I had. And I probably got a bunch of people sick <laughs> yeah. uh, at college before I realized that that's what I had. And so that, that two month stretch where I am like at home and kind of not doing anything is when I start writing because at some point one of my friends, you know, I don't know, I was like probably posting on Facebook about like inane things and I think he was like you just, just can you just start a blog like this is not the <laughs> this is not, you know, this is annoying to you're clogging this and that like just start a blog or something. Uh and so that is how I started writing. I started like my own Google Blogspot blog and then eventually that ramped into that got seen enough uh, and social media helped foster growth in this area for sure. But that stuff got seen enough that I started to latch on and do other freelance stuff. I ended up writing, like you talked about with Mike Bauman, uh, yeah. at a website, Philly's you know blog called Crashburn Alley, which was like the the second city, you know, yeah. just weirdly the people who I was there with like all went on to do stuff. And Corinne is like, you know, especially Corinne. Yeah, he was naming the people who worked there. And I was like, oh, this must be like the most famous Philly site ever. And he's like, yeah, it's top five. Right. Like at some point we all moved on to other stuff and it became hard to, you know, sustain it. Yeah. But yeah, so the writing, the writing portion of it definitely started around that time. And it was because I got mono uh, and was just sort of like laid up for a couple of months convenient so i start writing and yeah at this point i'm still like i haven't graduated from college yet as this stuff has begun uh it definitely accelerates after i graduate uh i graduated from college in 2011 uh, financial crisis made it difficult for me to find work even though i was like pretty good student really good student in high school and then pretty good in college i had some senioritis stuff for sure like with capstone and spanish like i just wasn't good at and other things that i had a hard time with eventually but it was pretty tough for me to find like a real job and at that point i had like a relationship and was trying to get married and like move and all kinds of different things and so i ended up temping and working like being hired full-time eventually as an insurance underwriter exciting which that's was, the stuff i get people on this podcast to talk yes. about in between that was like a stint at Baseball Info Solutions for like a summer and a half. This was like one of those odd jobs I was I was doing. I was like as a stringer. Yeah, stringing games, charting balls in play, watching a ton of video, and you know doing some of what Statcast now does automatically. Right. This was at the advent of the shift, charting balls in play, defensive runs saved as a stat. Uh, it was sort of cannibalizing itself in a way um so like remember brett laurie yeah the shift god right so like the charting the balls in play helped you generate drs in a way that felt pretty good but then it also allowed the teams who were buying bis's data to start moving their players around 
in a way that like made DRS worse because some of the baseline for DRS was like what the average fielder was doing. And now right. there wasn't a real clear idea of what that was because some of the teams were shifting and positioning their guys and others were not. Yeah. And particularly when only a few were doing it, it was really bad. Yes. And also some of it was like, some of it was definitely just who was in your division that you play a lot. If you're the Rays, you're already inclined to think in a certain way. And also David Ortiz and Mark Teixeira and like Hideki Matsu, like all these shiftable dudes you're just seeing all the time. Yeah. Even like Millar and, you know, so, you know, anyway, I'm experiencing that. This is now like, yeah, this is like close to 2011 or so. I'm writing on the side. I'm working at Baseball Info Solutions you know, and Williams Sonoma on the weekends and all this stuff, like trying to save up money to like get married and move. And then eventually we, we do. And again, luck, the building that baseball info solutions is in is also 10 minutes from my front door. It is in a building that used to be a movie theater where my grandparents would go. (laughs) Like I could go walk from baseball info solutions to like my grandma's house for like a sandwich, you know, in the middle of the day. Totally lucky and random. So at some point, like that stuff works out. I leave Baseball Info Solutions. I'm still writing. I'm working at this insurance company full time, benefits the whole shebang. And an opportunity arises where in Tempe, mm-hmm. my insurance company, which shall remain nameless. Of course. I like people there, but that company you know like it is bad that industry sucks that's a whole other episode but like the good news is that's true of all insurance companies so you're pretty covered yeah no doubt they open up an office in tempe and my now ex-wife but like fiance at the time Mm -hmm. she is a teacher and it was tough finding teaching jobs in pennsylvania it is not hard to find teaching jobs in arizona we soon realized why that is (laughs) but the fact that they were opening a branch of my insurance company's job like in Tempe and that, you know, she could presumably find work easily in Arizona, which was true, yeah. made us. So we, you know, get married and two days later drive to Arizona. We spend like 10 days on the road, Route 66, the whole, the whole deal, come to Arizona. And this is around the time when like Keith Law is moving from Phoenix to Philly, basically. And so we are trading places, essentially, like within a couple months of of one another. I meet Kylie over the phone at this time and then end up doing a mix of like draft coverage at ESPN.com with Keith and some pro stuff with other people under Kylie at Fangraphs. Mm -hmm. That first stint at Fangraphs was pretty short because it became clear at some point that like I just had to focus on the ESPN.com yeah. stuff. And there wasn't like the the framework like there is now kind of for a working relationship with ESPN and fan graphs didn't really exist yet. Right. Uh, like Danny Zips will write stuff for ESPN on occasion and like sometimes Jay has and, and I did in the past and all sorts of other stuff. So yeah, Jay was talking about that when he was on here and basically like at some point they built some kind of sharing framework, but not always. And it used to be more that BP did that and ESPN and BP were kind of opposed to fan graphs in a very like broad speaking kind of way. Yeah, I can't I wasn't around for that era of BP stuff so I can't speak to that but like yeah. um Yeah, that was a, a while ago. Definitely, you know, 
doing stuff for ESPN.com and doing stuff at Fangraphs. Interplayed for a little while before I was just at ESPN for a while and still you know, freelance in a freelance capacity. So working at this insurance job for a couple of years, yeah. both in Pennsylvania and then living here in Arizona, which I moved here in 2014. So I'm like freelancing under Keith and, but like I know Kylie and, you know, the, the Fangraphs crew. I know Dave's Cameron and Appleman at that point and Sestuli, like those guys had come through Arizona and I was hanging out and, you know, so they know me at this, at this point. Right. Then the Braves come calling for Kylie to be in like, you know, basically a front office position. Yeah. So he leaves Fangraphs and that job, that full-time job opens up. I do not get it on the first go. I was like definitely a finalist Mm -hmm. during the interview process. But the Daves at that time decided to like go in a different direction for a while. And then that didn't last long for like, whatever kind of reasons I don't quite know because I don't really know the guy they hired and it's not a thing we've talked about, but like the job opened up again, not long after that. And I didn't burn any bridges, even though like it was disappointing. There had been a a bunch of times when I was trying to leave this full-time insurance job for like a full-time baseball job, either in media or with a team. And I interviewed with a bunch of teams during that time and like didn't get it. And then I didn't get this, you know, the fan graph job. And it was pretty exhausting for a while, like to keep, grinding and you know in my spare time doing a totally different job and interviews in your spare time is just like that's a lot and so but also at the time you know i am basically it's like lifting weights to prepare for the job that i have now to do at the the level that i'm trying to to do it at and with like the amount of depth that i'm trying to do it at like building that stamina through the grind when I'm yeah. juggling a full-time insurance job and like all this freelance stuff in pursuit of something full-time in baseball was useful. It takes a party sometimes and like it puts strain on my marriage and like all kinds of different stuff and also had like some benefits. So 2016 rolls around and things don't work out with Fangraphs and like Dan Farnsworth. And so now, you know, the Daves call me and offer me the job and I had to finish the 2016 draft coverage with Keith at ESPN before I could hop on. But that is when I hopped on full time at, at Fangraphs is the early summer of 2016. I remember that feeling of like going to extended spring training at the, at the, the Dodgers place. They were playing the Reds and like seeing Yadier Alvarez and like Francis Cespedes and guys who's you know, names and in my, my mind's eye, like I still remember just that feeling of being a full-time baseball employee for the first time. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think other than Sporer, I'm now the longest tenured full-time Fangraphs writer. Yeah, that, that definitely sounds right. Uh, I mean, I don't think Sean counts, right? Because he doesn't write. I mean, Sean counts for sure. Like, but as far as writers go, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Sean is the site's MVP. Either you or Sean (laughs) is the site's MVP. I'm the, I think I'm still the rookie. Like, I guess we've hired, uh, uh, like Keaton since then, but I think I'm, I'm almost, I'm definitely the least tenured writer aside from uh, all the literal 12 year olds we employ. Okay. That's very much not true. They're young, but they're, (laughs) it's not child labor. Sorry, guys. (laughs) Like, we had Alex Iser down here and I felt very old. Yeah. I, and that's coming for me too. Uh, It has, because of when I, like, I've always been the youngest one for most of this stuff. Yeah. Which is part of, you know, how I've been able to to do this, I think. But like now that time is that time is over now, you know. Yeah. So I'm yeah. 34 now and 
You're Clayton Kershaw's age. Ooh. The, the 2023 season will be my 16th in baseball in some capacity. Now, there are some people who would tell you that, like, I haven't worked in baseball at all. And I can, there are, you know, nah. there are arguments that for that, that like, I understand because the job I have now, it relies on me and really only me to like direct and push and, and have, you know, discipline and drive. It is not like I have a logo on my jacket that I'm, there's not like a, an easily identifiable common goal that I'm sharing with a whole staff of people that has like a ring at the end, all that stuff like isn't there. So you have to kind of generate that from yeah. yourself. That's a weak view by those people. Anyway, it, go on. Well, they don't, there's certain things about it that they don't understand that like, yeah. but also there are things about their, you know, actually having a job with a team that like, I don't understand. I have autonomy. I have a flexibility that I create for myself. I'm sort of floating out here on my own, having to figure out how to do that and be very resourceful. But like I can on a random Thursday, if I finish all my stuff, you know, alter my state of consciousness and walk to the movie theater and like hang out on a random Thursday where like people who are my friends in baseball during certain parts of the year have that luxury. But like teachers, when it's December 1st, they maybe they have some off-season homework to do, but like they get to be done. Yeah. And now my job, like a part of it that is like intense and stressful in a different way is only beginning. Like I don't really have an off-season. And so like there are definitely trade-offs and there are yeah. scenarios where like I see myself leaving Fangraphs for a job with the team for like a couple of different reasons. Some of which is just like, you know, my own limitations and our limitations as a site. From like a baseball understanding standpoint, like if you're the Dodgers, you're going to understand more as a group about baseball than like yeah. the group of writers at Fangraphs. All of us combined, for sure. Right. And so at some point, like I well, won't feel Dan, as attached Dan's, uh... in like holding hands with baseball anymore. Yeah. Because the distance between what teams understand and what I do will have too big of a gap for me to feel like that. And that might be an indicator that I should go at some point. But right now... I feel okay about it. Like I don't under, I can't map kinetics in real time while I'm sitting in the scout seat at a game. Like I know some of the giants personnel next to me can, but I know they're doing it at least. And so it keeps me close enough to it that, you know, I feel okay. And like, I still haven't maxed myself out in this space yet. There are things I want to explore in a way that fan graphs will allow me to creatively that like doesn't exist on the team side. And so I'm hanging out still, but you know, taking phone calls every off season and talking through some, some stuff with, with teams sometimes about jobs. And I don't really know what the future holds in that regard, but I'm just open to it and really enjoying like every day of, of work that I have now. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a pretty nice transition. Like it would be pretty annoying to basically start working in baseball when you're 18 and not like what you do. And it sounds like things have worked out pretty well for you in that way. After uh, some years in the wilderness of working in insurance, you know, I worked, right, but, uh, I worked in finance. We, we all did right. things we aren't proud of. <laughs> right. Like baseball at that time was sanctuary. Yeah. It was a way of avoiding work at my desk. You know, like I would get what I had to do done. And then at some point, the way they started to do it was more labor intensive. Again, it's like it's whole. It's a whole other episode. I was basically selling group insurance without a license. Like it, but the regulations are such that 
it, uh, there were just ways around it that they were using. It was not good. This is not but, financial advice. We're not financial advisors, not legal advice either. Just, uh, just you know, get that out of the way up top. I've forgotten so much of that stuff now too. Like it was, I'm so happy to be away from it now that it's like a language I used to know that I don't anymore. Stuff about like group insurance and yeah, like life insurance anyway. Well, hey, people are asking me about uh, about contract insurance and... You know, I do the finance beat at Fangraphs because I know some of that stuff. Maybe you can do the insurance beat. I'm sure you'd love that. Yeah, so love it. Uh -huh. Risk adjusting for some of that stuff, man. Like it was group insurance, which means businesses would go through an insurance broker to try to get benefits for their all their employees at once. Yeah. And the names of the businesses would like pop up in a queue that we, the underwriting team, would like pull from and start to make a, like a framework for their insurance plan. And sometimes it would say like Nashville Predators, <laughs> Los Angeles Lakers. And you're just like, um, I'm going to take that one. And then you see, because if they want like disability insurance, if they want life insurance, they have to provide you salary information for each employee and you have to do like math. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. And so you'd be like, oh, wow, like good for you, Phil Jackson <laughs> and stuff like that. <laughs> I, I do picture like, Phil Jackson sitting there like, ah, oh, do I want like the HMO plan? Oh, this like partially out of market one looks good. Oh man, the premiums are a little higher though. <laughs> like stars, yeah. they're just like us. Yep. Yep. They are just like us. Yes. And they're also not like us, but in many ways they are. This is going to be changing gears, but let's get to the second part of this segment, which is, Eric, tell me about some of your favorite baseball memories. And I have the, the benefit of knowing what these are going to be. So... Memories that relate to baseball in some way, let's say. Right. So my first baseball memory is going to Veterans Stadium to see a Yankees-Phillies interleague game. I haven't gone back and looked at exactly what year this was, but my parents surprised me. They told me that we were going to the zoo <laughs> when, in fact, we were like going to the vet for my first baseball game. Now, because it's Veterans Stadium, I don't have the... Yeah, we walked out of the concourse tunnel and there it was. And it was like the most beautiful green grass I'd ever seen. Like, no, <laughs> it is. It was like a felt looking, dour, green, filthy turf that maybe gave a bunch of the early 90s Phillies like cancer or something. Like a weird number of those early 90s Phillies players have had early disease in their lives anyway. But it was, you know horrible looking and it was still so awesome like part of the reason that my parents took me to that game is because pat kelly former yankees second baseman cardinals and, and blue jays a little bit g-man Choi's signing scout with the mariners eventually wow. was from my hometown katasakwa he's one of only a handful of pro athletes to come out of my little town which when i was there you know two-way public school 125 kids in a class Whoa, uh, in a graduating class. Yeah, small. Larry Miller, North Carolina basketball player, All-American. Jonathan Linton, Bills, fullback. Pat Kelly, Anthony Recker. That's most of them. So Pat was a big deal because he was playing for the Yankees and is from my little town. And so, you know, he didn't start that day, but we had binoculars and like I got to look at him in the dugout and all that stuff. So, you know, that was an important formative memory for me. And then, like, seeing the vet and all of its problems, like, you know, the processing center for delinquent people. Like, there's just a, like, a courthouse. It's very, very Philly. 
And a holding cell there was in Veterans Stadium, which has been raised. And so it's a fun, you know, the Google the Baltimore Orioles, Brian Billick, preseason game, Eagles, Veterans Stadium. <laughs> like there are all kinds of funny anecdotes from the vets. And you know, I loved it very, very much and was there several times. My parents were very supportive, even though neither of, them is, are, neither of them is a sports fan. They were still gung-ho to take me there and, you know, sometimes to Baltimore for stuff. Like it was a, a longer drive, but like the Titans would play in Baltimore. I'd want to go see Steve McNair and Eddie George and like we would go. So there were a bunch of those where, you know, my parents were taking me to, to games and stuff. And that first one was was a big deal. Phillies and Yankees. Yeah, that was early in interleague play too then. So that's probably pretty cool. Like It was really cool. Yes. Yes. The idea that I couldn't tell you who some of the other, I think like Louis Soho started at second base that day because that's why Pat didn't play. <laughs> and like Pat, you know, Pat graduated from high school with my uncle Greg. And so he's a family friend and I got to hang out with him a couple of times as a kid. He came over to the house and like played ping pong and stuff like he was a nice guy. He's had some, some stuff happen since then that, you know, he was so nice to me as a kid. He's had some, some trouble later in life, but you know, I love those memories with him and like hope he's, he's doing better and, and okay. And some of that stuff and like what is next on my, the chapter list I sent you, Bill Romanowski breaks Kerry Collins' jaw. Yeah. Speaking of the vet, presumably. No. So, uh. you know, I'd, my family and I would go to Latrobe, Pennsylvania sometimes. My uncle Greg would act at St. Vincent's College there uh, during the summer. He was like a traveling, you know, living out of a suitcase actor as a young man. And he, we would go see him out there. We would stay uh, on campus in like the dorms. And during the summer, it was like, there was nobody there, but the Steelers would have training camp there. And, you know, it would be a nice lo-fi retreat from, there was no, there were no TVs in the dorms or anything like that. We would spend like a week just as a family in quiet, watching my uncle in plays and watching Steelers training camp and like hanging with an old priest family friend who like was at the, taught at this college. So one day I'm reading the paper and my favorite team is the Carolina Panthers. They had Kerry Collins who they drafted in the first round, quarterback from Pennsylvania, went to Penn State, all this stuff. Like, this is part of why I love the Panthers as a kid and still do. And they had Kerry Collins. Bill Romanowski in a pre preseason game hits him on the jaw with the crown of his helmet and, and breaks Kerry Collins' jaw. Kerry Collins has issues subsequent to that with, like, substances, maybe because of the painkillers, like, from the jaw stuff. He had alcohol issues. It's pretty known about that. He used a racial slur. Yeah, like a team function around like Moosin Muhammad. They're one of the Panthers wide receivers at the time. And the Panthers just move on from Kerry Collins, who's like my favorite player. They just, you know, wave him basically. Yeah. And so I'm in second grade and my family has to explain to me like all of that stuff. Hmm. So yeah. that's so that stuff combined with some of Pat's stuff later in life is definitely like giving me a context for athletes and idolizing them or not. And like understanding that they are people and like, so are you. And so right. you have the opportunity to, you know, just like, don't be so judgmental, but also don't be like naive. Yes. Naive. Yes. Yeah. So, so there's some of that stuff around, around that. Then the 98 home run chase was a big deal to me. I was in fourth grade at this point. And that was, you know, a big part of, I was Mark McGuire for Halloween and a big part of even at I that wasn't age. Mark McGuire for Halloween. Nice. How did you did you do the goatee? No, I wasn't even. And I'm you know a oh. Cardinals fan who likes baseball, so oh, okay. you were really getting after it. 
I was, you know, my, my, my parents took my mom's like mascara and like drew a goatee on me, <laughs> but it was black. So I was just like, this isn't accurate. This isn't movie quality. <laughs> it's red mascara here. Yeah. But yeah, I got to be, you know, Big Mac for Halloween that year and all that stuff. Like that was, that was a pretty big deal. And I remember that with an intensity that is rare for, you know, I was in fourth grade. So yeah. Some of that stuff. Uh, my parents put me to bed before McGuire hit the record-breaking home run. Like they thought he was not going to get another at bat. We were living with my grandparents at the time because we were moving and like in transition from one house to another. And so we were at my grandparents' house and sleeping in like their basement and uh, it was like time to go to bed. Like the TV upstairs was bothering people and it was late and it was like time to go to bed. And so I, I didn't see him hit that home run. Pat Kelly, ironically, is like the first to hug Mark McGuire <laughs> after he, you know, crosses home plate. Full circle. So yeah, all sorts of weird stuff like that. Yeah, that's funny. Like I'm a little bit older than you, but not by much. And that like the home run chase really resonates to me too. I didn't see that home run. Like, we didn't have cable. There was just no chance I was watching that game. But I remember, like, following it in Sports Illustrated and, like, picking up my copy for the week. And, it, you know, it's June and Ken Griffey has, like, I'm making this up, but, like, 57 home runs. And then he hit three for the rest of the season. But I just remember following that chase all year. It was Griffey, Sosa, McGuire, and then Sosa, McGuire. And I had been kind of disillusioned with baseball because of the strike because my dad was disillusioned with baseball a little bit sure i picked everything up from him and that season really like brought it back yes yeah i was not old enough yet to really have had like strike didn't really impact my thinking in any way yeah like i was nine that year and so i was the of the strike 94 i was six i guess i was five going on six yeah i was eight going on nine and so like my dad like what my dad said about it really like and my mom uh like really resonated a lot with me and then like then they changed their tune. But yeah, like that uh, that decade, even though we experienced it differently, like, man, I bet you that the home run chase made a lot of baseball fans. Yeah, it was a big deal to me. And some of it was because the Phillies at this time were not good. Yeah, you kind of missed the, uh, the, what was it, 93 World Series Phillies? Yep. Yeah, I was, you know, I was four. So yeah, um, it wasn't... Really wasn't really there yet, and my family was is more of a football family, and so it wasn't like, yeah, I really don't have visceral memories from that time. Yeah. At some point, though, the Phillies draft Pat Burrell. You know, Mike Lieberthal is okay. Bobby Bray is really good, but for whatever reason, the city doesn't really coalesce around him. And Jimmy Rollins and those guys start to percolate up around the year two thousand. Yeah, they trade Scott Rowland which is how I start to think about and understand prospects for the first time. Right. Basically like, the topic hey, this of this guy is the best Philly. Like, why is he leaving? Right. Did we get something back? My youth soccer team at the time had a couple parents who like, you know, I would talk sports with Chad Solomon's dad, uh, Nick Borda's parents would like, I'd be like in their football pool and stuff like that. And at this point, like I'm, you know, 13 years, going on 13 years old, like in that, yeah, 12 to 13 area. And we start wondering. Were you a midfielder? I was, I was a goalie for a while. All right. I was a goalie when I was younger because like I had good feel for how to be aggressive. And I was also like bigger, bigger. Uh, like yeah. I was a couple months older for my class and I was old for my draft class. And I was too. I was a goalie in soccer. Just took too, up so. a lot of the goal. 
Yeah. But yeah, so like, you know, at some point there's like an ESPN.com article, like who might replace Scott Rowland in Philly? And one of the candidates is Mike Costanzo. <laughs> and that's <laughs> I don't know the, who this is. That's what well, you could you could look him up, but like one of the other candidates, although not listed as likely to replace him as Mike Costanzo, is Chase Utley. Ooh, right? So there we go. So, you know, these names start to pop up and then I start to develop an interest in this type of thing. It manifests more in like an interest in the NFL draft just because of accessibility yeah, uh, when I am an much adolescent. More done about it. But the idea that prospects are a thing I cared about started around then. And so, yeah, um, then like Jim Tomey gets signed. Citizens Bank Park is built. Things start to get a little bit better under Larry Boa. And I come into high school where yeah, like some of my friends- time. Right. Yeah. Like all of this is happening and some of my friends are like becoming old enough to drive. And so now we just start going down to Philly and get to experience that entire beginning of Brett Myers and Cole Hamels and Carlos Ruiz and Placido Polanco, like before things really turned a corner. Hey, Polanco was in the rolling trade, right? Yes. Yes. Bud Smith, I think, was in the in the role in trade. But yeah, things start to really turn around then as I am like becoming more independent as a young person. And then that rolls right into to me going to college in Philly. My first fall semester was the fall of 07. Very good time to uh to really be peaking in your Philly interests, but particularly Phillies. Yes. Howard, Utley, Rollins, Victorino, Worth, Burl, Ruiz. Hamels and and Halliday and Oswalt and yeah so like I went to the to 07 playoff game you know Kyle Kendrick was their game two starter they weren't ready yet <laughs> Matt Holiday and Kaz Matsui and and those Rockies they housed them Aaron the Rowan Rockies yeah it was Aaron Rowan's last series before he he split and some of that stuff so it was a magical time and I'm happy to have like been a part of it and if things don't probably the same way for like a bunch of us, you know, like I think with, you know, with Meg for sure, things broke for her in a certain way, like with regard to Seattle sports in general with the Seahawks and the Mariners both that like, you know, ramped her into her this, like her her brain and like same same for me for sure. Like, yeah, I think I would be much less into baseball if the Cardinals hadn't been good for the entire 21st century. Like that definitely helps. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's yes. easier to keep engaged on a year to year basis. Uh, I want to close this out with a little bit of fan service. It's Super Bowl week, and so there's an item on your list of things we could talk about that really intrigued me. Summers at Eagles training camp. Yeah. So why don't you talk to me about that? So the Eagles during the Andy Reid era and just before that, which I think would have been like Ray Rhodes, trained at Lehigh University. They did camp at at Lehigh, which was like 20, 25 minute drive up the mountain from, from home. And again, in high school, especially mid to late high school. Most of my friends in high school were a couple years older than I was. Eh, you're just too cool. Again, like I've just always sort of been the youngest. Well, my group of friends as a, as a younger kid, they helped me develop my sense of humor and I love them for that still. But then they started to do bad stuff early in high school. Like I just didn't want to try drugs yet. I didn't want to like do B&Es <laughs> in abandoned, you know, buildings and stuff. It's kind of harmless. You know, it's not like they were doing it in people's homes or anything like that. But like there was a bunch of stuff. I just didn't want to be part of it yet. Wasn't ready for some of that stuff, but, you know, wanted to f- find my sports f- nerd friends and they just happened to be a couple years older than, than I was. Yeah. So like 
as it so happens. At, uh, at Katasakwa High School, motto, dedicated to educational excellence. <laughs> I thought I would do a little uh, Sistuli-esque callback and uh, look things up while we talk about it. There you go. I, it's, yeah. I mean, where I'm from is I'm lucky to have been from there. And but yeah, like my high school was small enough that you could have like more social, there was more social liquidity yeah, up and down the, the different bigger your grades. school, the more you just hang out with your grade. Right. So yeah, like my friends, we, we would get up early during the summer and go to Eagles camp. They would have two-a-days. We developed a really good feel for knowing what fields that they were going to practice on based on where some of like the film taking equipment, the cranes and, you know, the genie lifts and all that stuff were going to be to film practice. Like we developed a really good understanding of like where to be and also got to be very, very, you know, up close and personal with all of that era's Eagles players and, you know, coaches and coordinators and like talking to people and you know just listening to like brian dawkins and jeremiah trotter fire people up 50 feet away from you and how big trey thomas and john runyon were and just all these things and also seeing like all the different jobs people had in in sports yeah nfl training camps are like yeah there's a shocking number of people working and to just be able to do that for free three times a week for you know two or three weeks of the year it was amazing. And again, just like totally lucky that we had the opportunity to do that. We were at the point late in high school. And then when they fired Andy Reid and Chip Kelly became the head coach, they stopped doing camp at Lehigh and just do it in Philly now. And yeah, that was that. But like some of that stuff, by the end, we were like within a guy or two predicting the entire 53-man roster down to, you know, who the fourth and fifth corners were going to be. And like, we were just sitting there, you know, taking notes and trying to talk to coaches and people who were there about football stuff and like real, you know, football stuff. And yeah, like X's and O's stuff. Yeah. Just loving the X's and O's part of the games of sports. And some of that for sure was facilitated by like hearing Andy Reid talk about it (laughs) from where you're sitting. Pretty lucky. Yes. I mean... I guess we should close this out soon. We've uh, been rambling for a little bit and it's fun. But I I do think that one like kind of through line that you kept mentioning is that like, man, you've been in the right place at the right time. But I think there's um like you weren't the only person who did these things, but there's something to maximizing the opportunities that you get, you know, like the door cracks open a different amount for everyone. But, you know, how much you wedge your foot into it matters a lot too, if that makes sense. Sure. Right. And I think that's kind of interesting. Like, Lehigh County has presumably a fair number of people in it. Yeah. Or like Lehigh Valley area. Um, yes. Not all of them like snuck, like figured out how to go to Eagles training camp. Right. And, and the version of me sitting here at 34 and like the way some of my experience and the way I've reflected on it has informed how I think about the world is like in the same way that I'm lucky to be where I'm from for all the reasons that we've delineated. Yeah. I'm also lucky to have that impulse right. to... To, yeah, like, my foot's in that in that door, you know? Yeah. Like, I'm a resourceful dude. And some of that is just like, yeah, Vince Carter can jump high, you know? Like, it doesn't seem any different to me that those are some of the traits I have. Yours is less lucrative, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> I, ha- I haven't watched, like, a ton of videos of you talking to Keith Law when you see him. But I have watched, what is it, 2001 Dunk Contest? I forget what year it was, but oh, you know the one I'm talking about. I think about. it was 01. Yeah, oh yeah, I know the one you're thinking about. The inverted 360 windmill is the best. Like, it is the most picturesque 
beautiful dunk of all time. Just the way he seems to like, he rotates all the way around and then he kind of stops and then does, and then he finishes the windmill. It is just so emphatic. I watch a lot of, uh, of freestyle skiing and snowboarding, which is, you know, like trick skiing and snowboarding. And the thing that appeals to me about that is very much the same thing that appeals to me about Vince Carter. It's just that like, you see people do stuff and you're just like, how does their body do that? Like their, their arms are spinning the wrong way. Like they stopped midway through this spin and now they're going again. And uh, yes. yeah, I, if baseball could develop some version of that, it would be great. I, defense is kind of baseball's version of that. And I really like watching defenders for that reason, but just don't quite have the athletic virtuosity on display in the same like like, it is there, but it's not in the same jaw-dropping, like, oh, my God, people can't do that way. Right. The it's Some of the sports are set up for it. it like, it is the thing in freestyle skiing. It's yeah, that's just the whole point. Yeah. In basketball, you have enough opportunities to dunk. Like, Ja just gets <sighs> enough opportunities on a given night that at some point, like, he is going to put people on a poster. But in baseball and, like, some football, you know, receptions, some of the catches like the Odell Beckham and Justin Jefferson and George Pickens. Yeah, I was I was literally watching video of Justin Jefferson goofing around before the the flag football pro bowl just because, oh my God. Yeah. Yep. So they tried to do like a best catch thing at the pro bowl this week, you know, last weekend. Oh, I didn't see that. And I wonder if there's a way for baseball to do like some sort of, can we do like an infield showcase where, you know, 25-year-old Jose Iglesias, in the same way yeah. someone is, like, throwing BP to Josh Hamilton in the home run derby, can someone hit fungos to Jose Iglesias in a way that enables him to, like, do ridiculous stuff? Yeah. That might be – that's a free – I'll put that one out there. <laughs> if anyone with MLB is still listening to this, at this, that might be a cool thing to try. Yeah. Watch people take infield that they all start breaking, like, make it sick on purpose. Home run derby is fine, but – uh. Like, when I watch baseball highlights, I like watching defensive highlights. And yep. I think that a lot of people share that. It's tough. The outfield stuff is tough. You, you can maybe do, like, home run robbery, something like that. Yeah, a little dangerous. Out, outfield is tough. If you're hitting the fungos from shallow outfield and the guys kind of know what you're aiming for, it's just so – it's got to be so hard to have feel for hitting fungos in that spot where it's just <laughs> it's scraping the wall, you know? Yeah. And, like, like I can imagine – you know, who's the best home run robber in baseball right now? It might be Byron Buxton, but the Twins aren't going to be like, <laughs> right. hey, Byron, why don't you jump into this wall, I don't know, 30 times, 35 times on your day off? Yeah. Yeah. You have to have to have it Probably set up. Happening. So I was surprised that they let, you know, Amon Ross, St. Brown, and Stefan Diggs jump off a mini trampoline onto- Wait, what? I need to go watch highlights yeah, of this. It wasn't good. It wasn't good. It's experimental. You know, maybe it'll be good, but it wasn't like a great watch. I'm a big uh, Sun God fan, so- Seeing, seeing him in action, I'd, I'd be a big fan. <laughs> the sun guy. Uh, on, on, that, on that extremely discursive note, I think it's time to call it an episode. But Eric, let's come back and just talk about like not particularly topical baseball stuff sometime again soon. Because this is really fun. Yeah, buddy. Thanks for having me on. And this was a great idea to do this series with folks writing for the site. So thanks for coming up with it and executing it. This has been Fangraphs Audio. Thank you to Sig Dell for joining us, and thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the program, consider recommending it to a friend or two. Word of mouth really helps us out. After you have visited the Fangraphs.com shop, don't forget to also sign up for the Fangraphs newsletter. It's the best way to keep up on all the cool things we have going on over at the website. 
And finally, if you haven't downloaded the free Fangraphs app on your smartphone in time for spring training, it is definitely a preferred mobile experience for looking up those sweet, sweet sabermetric stats on the go. That'll do it for us this week. Be excellent to each other, and we'll talk to you next time.